So this week, I've been thinking about how there are many, many different responses to God's word, the Bible, and the Savior King Jesus that it points to. We've seen some of those responses this week to God's word. Any of you read the story that I did that at a university in Wisconsin, as Matt Walsh was doing one of his conferences on what is a woman, there was a young man outside with a microphone reading from God's word. And a, a group of people angry about that gathered around him. They started by shouting so that people couldn't hear God's word. Then they, they got cans and, and banged on the cans. They began blaring a siren right next to him, and it reached its pinnacle when one of the people grabbed his Bible, literally tore out pages, and began chewing on them and swallowing them. Now, if you know your Bible, you can think of times when God told his prophets to eat his word. Different situation here. These people did not want this guy reading God's word, and that's how they responded. As we go through Matthew chapter 2 this morning, I want to look at three different responses to God's word and the Savior King who it points to, Jesus Christ. I want us to observe them in our world, but I also want us to ask ourselves, which of these responses, or maybe several of these, which, which, which do I see in my life, okay? But before we get to those three responses, I want you to meet some of the main characters in Matthew chapter 2. First, we want to meet the wise men. Chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What do we know about these guys? Someone once said that we know they were, they were firemen. You say, how do people know that? Because some of the older translations said they came from afar. <laughs> but people do, they do wonder, where did these guys come from? Because all it says here is from the east, and that's all we can know for certain. Okay, but you think about a couple possibilities. And I tend to think it, it, it's likely one of these two, though it could have been anywhere. Anywhere, Babylon? You remember wise men are mentioned in the book of Daniel, where, where Daniel was in the court at, at Babylon? Guys that watch the stars and try to look into things. It could have been that some of their descendants had, had heard of Daniel's ministry there and how even in Daniel chapter 9, he had given a very specific timeline as to the Messiah's arrival. So maybe they're watching the skies and putting all this together. Or maybe it was Persia. That's where we just left Esther, right? Maybe there were descendants of the Persians. We know they had their own groups of wise men that counseled the king. Maybe some of their descendants heard of God's deliverance of his people, the Jews, and, and heard of the Jewish scriptures like Numbers 24, that a star would come out of Israel, etc., and they're watching. Bottom line is, 
we don't know for sure except that they came from the east. They came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There's another question a lot of us have. What was that star? And a lot of people have speculated. It's an interesting discussion. Was it actually the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn? Was it a meteor? Was it something else? We're, we're kind of like people before we heard that Elon Musk was celebrating his purchase of Twitter with a rocket launch the other day. Were you out there wondering what is that? What, what is that in the sky? People wonder the same thing. What was it that, that these wise men saw? God doesn't give us a lot of details. We're going to come back to the wise men in a little bit, but for now I want you to meet Herod. Verse 3, when, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled. That The word is picturesque, like when you throw a rock in, into the water and it disturbs the water. He's disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why is he disturbed, and why the whole city? Because Herod, to put it bluntly, was off his rocker with paranoia and insecurity about his reign. And he would do whatever it took to keep his position. He knew he was not well liked by the Jewish people because he himself was of Edomite roots. He was appointed by Roman, Rome and he was of Edomite roots. Where did the Edomites come from? Esau. So he knew there's this ancient struggle between Esau and Jacob, and, and he represents the, the Esau side. So in that insecurity, and it got worse near the end of his life, he became very murderous, ravenous. History tells us that he even killed one of his wives. He killed two of his own sons. He had a brother-in-law who was a priest in the area and began to gain popularity which Herod felt threatened him. So he had to ponder, how can I take him out without the people knowing that I did it? And historians tell us that he invited his brother-in-law to a swimming party at one of the rivers. And at first, Herod sat on the shore with his brother-in-law. And then he encouraged his brother-in-law, why don't you go in, take a dip? What his brother-in-law didn't know is that Herod had men in there at the ready. They pretended as though they were roughhousing, as men sometimes do, dunking and playing. Only they intentionally held him under long enough for him to die. And to cover it all up, Herod made sure to have a glorious funeral for his brother-in-law so that the people wouldn't know his murderous intention. He also knew as he grew older that because of his wickedness, when he died, probably Nobody was going to be crying, but he wanted to make sure somebody was crying when he died. So you know what he did? He sent some of his guys out into the area and said, round up some influential people in the area, and when I die, execute them all. That way, some people will be crying when I die. This is Herod. He doesn't want to hear word of any other king but himself. This led Augustus to say of Herod, it's better to be his sow than his son. Th this is Herod. 
And I want you to meet the religious leaders. We're just going to touch on these guys today. We'll meet them more in depth as we go through the book of Matthew. The chief priests and the scribes. Verse 4. Because Herod uh, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, who are these guys? And I'm going to focus on the scribes this morning. The scribes sometimes are referred to as lawyers. These were guys who knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. If, if you're looking for a guy that could answer the 3,000 trivia questions about the Old Testament, these are the guys. They had much, if not all of it, memorized. And so when there was a question about the Old Testament scriptures, the people would come to the scribes. Many of them were Pharisees. Okay, so he goes to them. And he says, where's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. They knew, for so it is written by the prophet. They, they go back into the Old Testament to Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They say Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just five miles away from Jerusalem. And what do we know about Bethlehem? It's where David, the king, was from, as well as his ancestors, Boaz and Ruth. So they said the, the Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now I want to go into the responses of these different groups. Okay, the religious leaders' response. We just met them. Do they go, having looked at the scriptures, do they go and say, hey, we should check this out? No, you will not see that in this passage. They just showed the prophecy, but there's no indication that they went to explore it. And I like what Richard Glover said here. He said, it is strange how much the scribes knew and what little use they made of it. You think about what Jesus told some of these guys later in his ministry. You, you know the scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me. And I'm the one they point to. Is there not warning in there? We can know the scriptures backwards and forwards and win any trivia contest. But ignore the Savior King that they point to. What about the, the wise men's response? They came to worship the king. They dropped everything, likely traveled at least months, maybe longer, to worship the king. What a contrast. These are not Jewish people. These are Gentiles. The scribes who, who had the scriptures practically memorized would not go, but these guys... These Gentiles, and this is a, a strong hint to the Jews reading this book. Hey, the king came not just for you. He came for Gentiles as well. Watch their worship. Verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, was that really what he had in mind? Absolutely not. We'll touch that later. I want you to look at verse 9. It says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. You read that, it sounds as though this star is moving. Now I think about that, and I can't help but think about Psalm 147.4, about God. What's it say? It says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And I like to imagine God looking around at the stars and saying, hey, Bob, move it <laughs> over Bethlehem. Whatever it was, verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That, that's a strong contrast with Herod, right? He's disturbed. He's threatened. They rejoice with joy. Verse 11. Now's where we're going to unpack some common misunderstandings about the wise man. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, what did they go into? Does it say going into the stable? No, going into the house. Okay. Now, you look later that Herod says, kill all the babies two years or under, right? What we realize is most scholars believe at this point they're settled in a house and Jesus is maybe one or two years old. I don't know what he was doing that day. I think about kids that age. I imagine them maybe running in the house, making all kinds of noise in a diaper. Maybe he's playing with wooden blocks that his carpenter father Joseph had given him. But these guys show up at the house. It's much later than the birth of Jesus, okay? So what do you do with your wise men and your nativity set that you bought at Costco? <laughs> I'm not saying you got to chuck them, but maybe at the very least we could put them on the other side of the room or the other side of the house. And when people ask us, why are they over there? Well, let me tell you a little bit about how it really went down. One thing I do believe we see here is they fell down and worshipped him. We see some symbolism in these gifts. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, you look through the Old Testament, that was a gift often shared by royalty to royalty. You think of Solomon on his throne. Another ruler would send him gold and he would send gold back. This is symbolic of the fact that he is the king. The king is born. Frankincense. Who used frankincense in the Old Testament? The priests in the tabernacle, in the temple. That was part of their blend in there. He is our priest, our, our high priest. What about myrrh? Do you know what myrrh was used for? To prepare the bodies of the dead. It points to his coming sacrifice. I believe that. But we see those three gifts, and that has led to another assumption. What's that? That there were three wise men. Nowhere does it say that. It says there were three gifts. It doesn't tell us how many there were. People have gone so far with that that centuries later, they tried to even name the, the three wise men. It may have been just three, but it may have been many more. That may have been part of why Herod was so disturbed in the whole city. Maybe there was a large group of these guys. 
We don't know, but whatever the case, we do know they came and they worshipped him. They worshipped. What was Herod's response? To fight the king. To resist the king. Right, verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He's going to hunt down and murder Jesus, the king. That's his heart. And some of you who know your Bible saying to Egypt, and our minds naturally go back to Exodus, right? Pharaoh, strongest empire in the world, harsh slavery. Why go to Egypt? This, this is much later in history. Egypt is no longer the pinnacle of world power. And by this time, we know during those silent years, the 400 years, many Jews had moved into Egypt. In fact, Alexandria, Egypt, is where they put together the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint. So there are many Jews already living there. It was about 75 miles away, the border from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. So that's where God leads them to go. Verse 14, Joseph was a just man. He listened to God. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And what Matthew's going to show us here, I told you over and over he's going to go to the Old Testament Jewish scriptures to show the Jews this is the one you've been waiting for. Matthew says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That was from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, centuries earlier. Now, when Hosea wrote that, he's thinking about how God had called his son, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. But Matthew, guided by the Spirit, said there's more. There's another fulfillment. Jesus, the Son of God, is going to go there and come back. That would mean a lot to the Jewish people, wondering, is this the Savior King? Verse 16, then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise guys, became furious. That was a paraphrase. And he sent and killed, listen to this, shift gears for a minute, all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, now, how ironic that right now we hear the coups and the cause of a little one. Can you imagine the horror that night as Herod's rage was unleashed on the town of Bethlehem? The cries that went out of those, those homes. Now, scholars have guesstimated we may be talking 12 or 20 children because Bethlehem was not large, but even one. Is too many. What a tragic night as Herod fights against the king. But Matthew shows us even this fulfills prophecy. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It mentions Rachel. Why? Weeping for her children. Rachel was the wife of who? Jacob. She was one of the mothers of the, the tribes of Israel, right? So the, the Israelite people see her as a mother of their people. She had died years earlier and been buried near Bethlehem. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31, what was going on? The people were exiled because of their sin. Many of them had been killed. So poetically, Jeremiah sees Rachel weeping for what's going on with her children. But Jeremiah 31, in context, also offers the Jewish people a note of hope because what does he introduce later on? There's going to be a new covenant by which your sins will be forgiven. And the kingdom will be reestablished. So even here, there's a, there's a note of hope if the Jews will listen. And we're going to see that God was sovereign over all of this. Just like when Haman was working his wicked plan, God was in control. God is in control here. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. You see God guiding them? And I can't help but think about this fight between Herod and Jesus and think back to Jesus' ancestor, David. Herod's insecure, murderous behavior reminds me of King Saul. Remember when he found out David was gaining favor with the people and he was God's chosen king? He starts chucking spears at him and then he starts hunting him around the wilderness. But during that hunt, over and over, it says, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord protected him. The Lord led him to safety. You see the same thing with his descendant here, Jesus, the king. Verse 21, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. That was a good instinct on Joseph's part. This is one of Herod's descendants. And you'll see Herod dies at the end of this story. All the other Herods you meet in the New Testament are relatives of his. But he was right about this descendant Archelaus because history tells us he would round up 3,000 of the Jewish people and slaughter them in one instant in the temple. That's history. So Joseph knew a little, a little bit about this guy enough to say, I'm not going back to Bethlehem. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. See, if, if Jerusalem and Bethlehem are the urban religious center of Israel, Galilee is the northern rural country area and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth now we know they lived there before right before they moved to Bethlehem so that here's another fulfillment what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene now there's something different here about this fulfillment than the first two do you notice there's no quotation marks of a verse from the Old Testament that's because there's no one verse that says Jesus would be 
a Nazarene in, in those words. So what is he talking about? This fulfills what was spoken by the prophets. Well, a couple possibilities I believe are likely. The Hebrew word for, for Nazareth is related to the word nezer, which in Hebrew means branch. A perceptive Jew might go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and remember, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Another thing many people believe that was fulfilled here, over and over we're told in the Old Testament that the promised Savior King would be despised, right? And like it or not, Nazareth was a city that was despised. It was a weird place in the Jewish mind for the Son of God to grow up. You remember John chapter 1? When, when one of the disciples told another one, hey, we found him. He's from Nazareth. You remember the response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? And you say, why? Okay. Well, this is way up in the country, away from the religious heart in Jerusalem. In fact, it's 70 miles north of Bethlehem. They could probably deal with Jerusalem or Bethlehem. But, but Nazareth, the town of maybe 100 to 400 people, and not only that, though it was small, there was a crossroads that went through there across the Roman Empire. So all kinds of traffic came through there from Gentile pagan countries, all kinds of different beliefs. So some of the prouder religious people down in Jerusalem might see, see that influence and the fact that there was a garrison of the hated Roman army nearby there. I think about it almost like this, to put it in Arizona terms. Like if, if you live down in Phoenix, the, the state capital, how many people in Phoenix are ever like, hey, uh, this weekend our family's going to take a road trip to Ash Fork? <laughs> I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Ash Fork is a place you drive by. You want to get to 40 so you can go west or east, right? Nothing against Ash Fork. We got friends that live there. I'm just talking about it. It's often overlooked, right? That's how Nazareth was. So much so that Nazareth was not even mentioned in the Old Testament. That's why later on the religious leaders who didn't understand the Bethlehem connection were like, no, 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 the Savior King can't come out of there. So he's the branch and he's despised. That's how it's fulfilled. But as we prepare to come to the finish on this, I think it's important to bring these different responses that we've looked at, these different responses to God's word and the Savior it points us to into our own lives. What's your response? What's my response to God's word and the Savior King that it points to? Are you fighting against it? God's word and the Savior King it points to? I'm guessing none of you would tear pages out of your Bible and eat them. You probably wouldn't be here if so. You probably never blared sirens or banged cans next to someone reading it. But I dare say there are times in our own lives where because we love our own glory more than the glory that truly belongs to God, that, that we fight against what we come to in the word. What was it that drove Herod? 
It was his insecurity and his desire for glory that wasn't even his. And, and you think about that. I think about it in contrast to Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all honor and all glory. And the lengths he came down to be born among us. Think about what's said in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, that means he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equal with him, but he's not going to cling to that, that right in this moment. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That emptied himself has caused a lot of confusion over the years. I like what one author said. It's not what Jesus emptied himself of. It's what he emptied himself into. Manhood. He is fully God, fully man. And I believe he willingly limited the use of his divinity at moments in his ministry. What contrast? The one truly worthy of glory came down after us. Herod, who's not worthy of that glory and his insecurity, fights and rages for it. And I would ask, what characterizes your life? my life. And when is this tested? It's tested in the church when, when somebody steps on my toes or steps into my turf, right? How do I react? I'm going to fight for what's my own, my glory, my rights, or am I going to do like Jesus? Because when, when Paul describes that in Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, like Jesus did, you do to your brothers and sisters in the world. We fight the king when we think life is ultimately about us. We sometimes forget it's ultimately about him. One other tragic thing about the life of Herod where I see great warning for our own lives. Some of you know that he was in the middle of a vast rebuilding project of the temple. Gold and large stones so awesome that later on in the book of Matthew, his Jesus' disciples are like, Jesus, look how big these are. Look how glorious this place is. You know what happened to that temple in A.D. 70, just shortly after it was finished? It was destroyed by the Roman army because of the rejection of the Messiah. But I think about Herod there. Outwardly, he's working on this religious symbol that means so much to the Jewish people. But inwardly, he missed the Savior King that it pointed to. The one who came and said, one greater than the temple is here. I think about that and I'm like, man, it is possible to get wrapped up in religious ritual and pursuits that look good to the world but that have nothing to do with the true Savior King that we meet in Jesus Christ. Are you fighting against the King today? What about those scribes who he said ignored the King in this instance? It wasn't that they didn't have Bible knowledge. What you see throughout Matthew and the other Gospels is that many of these guys weren't really seeking the truth with an open heart. They were playing games with the truth. You say, what are you talking about? 
You think about Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is making a hubbub in Jerusalem, cleansing the temple and receiving praise from people. And they say, hey, what authority are you doing this by? He doesn't come right out and answer him. He says, I got a question for you. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? And they start having this inner dialogue. Well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to ask us why we didn't partake in it. But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd that believed it was from God. So what did they answer him? We don't know. And what did he look at him and say? He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I think about that. When we come to God, if we're playing games with him, we shouldn't really expect to receive much insight from him. He knows your heart. If you come and you have a heart that is willing by his grace to know the truth and follow it, he will show you. But let's not play games with God for in so doing, we can miss the scriptures and the king which they point to. We're going to fight, we're going to ignore, or we're going to worship the king. I think about worshiping the king like these wise men did. And I think about something I read in the news a little while back. Shia LaBeouf, young actor. You've probably seen him in some movies like Transformers or Indiana Jones 4, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, greatest game ever played, a golf movie. Got him in your mind. He started a new movie called Padre Pio about a, a padre in the Catholic Church. And I want you to listen to the journey he went on during that movie. He said, when I walked into this movie, my life was on fire. I was walking out of hell, he said. I didn't want to be an actor anymore. My life was a complete mess. I hurt a lot of people. I felt deep shame, deep guilt. I didn't like to go outside much. I had a yearning to not be here anymore. I was on my way out. He explained that signing on to the movie felt miraculous and saved my life. Now, I'm going to have some disclaimers on this at the end, okay, but I want you to follow where I'm going for just a moment. He talked about why he appreciates the Latin mass. He said, I like it because I, I, I can't understand the words, so I'm not there to argue with the words. I'm, I'm just there to be in awe. Another thing he said, he says, a lot of churches, I listen to messages, and it just sounds like somebody is trying to sell me something. He said, sometimes it just seems way too casual, like they don't even understand who it is they came to meet. Like, let your hair down, and then we're going to walk through the death of Christ. Now, now, disclaimer here, I don't care what you wear to church, but I, but I like where he's going with our hearts. Do we understand the, the realities of who we're dealing with here when we talk about the Savior King? Now, those of us Protestants know tomorrow is Reformation Day, right? And we're thankful that Martin Luther went and nailed those 95 theses to the door. And one of his big pushes was, hey, every person should be able to understand God's word in their own language. They shouldn't have to go to a priest and hear things they have no idea what's going on. But I, but I think about the two. 
And I think about how even though we have that today, we have God's word in our own language, and we love to come and learn it up here. We love to come and memorize it. Sometimes we even love to argue it and debate it. But do we have the kind of awe and wonder that he was talking about? Do we realize the Savior King that we are here to encounter? Can we have a balance of understanding with, with worship and awe and obedience for a Savior King whom these wise men came to, to bow down before? Will it lead us to true worship of the King? And obedience. I thought about that and I just want to leave us with this question. So I think about worshiping the king and following the king. What if you and I, what if all we had left of the Bible when we left here this morning were the parts that we not only know, not only say we believe, but actually live out? How much of the Bible would you have left? How much of the Bible would I have left? Do we really worship the king? Do we really follow him? Are we willing like the wise men to lay everything down to come and adore him? Father, this is a challenging passage because if these guys are like me, we can look at our lives and, and we see the various responses at different times. Lord, I pray for us. If there's anyone here that needs to meet the Savior King for the first time, draw them to the cross. That myrrh pointed forward to his sacrifice for our sins. Let them know the Savior King came for them. And for those of us who, who claim the Savior King as our own, please do your work in our hearts today. Show us, Holy Spirit, where are we like Herod? We say we worship the king, but really as I live throughout my week in my house and my church and my workplace, it's really about my glory. And, and whoever crosses into that and steps on that better watch out because I'm going to lash out. Forgive us for when we live like that. May you bring us back to the awe and wonder we talked about of the Savior King that says it's, it's about his glory. Because we look at Herod, pursuing his own glory did not bring him joy. He was a miserable, insecure man. And that's where it leads us to. But Jesus, even though he was hunted and on the move and, and persecuted and went to the cross, he had the joy of walking with his father. And I think of what he said to his guys in the upper room. He said to his, you, Father, that I've given them I've spoken these things to them in the world that my joy may be fulfilled in them. Yes, following the king can be costly in this world. We got to make a choice. We want his joy fulfilled in us. And may we be people who dive into the word, not fight against it, not ignore it, but bow down before the king and walk with him wherever you lead us to our own Nazareth's where we're despised outside the city as the author of Hebrews says to share your reproach because there's joy in walking with the king 
Lord, please move in our midst. Show us each what steps we need to take this week by the Holy Spirit. I pray even our offering today would just be out of humble worship and adoration for the King of Kings who took the form of a servant for us. In Jesus' name.